Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hello and welcome. My name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors of Mercy Commons Church Fullerton. And today we are landing our series on the book of Ruth titled God in the Shadows. This series is a focused look at one of the shortest books in scripture. It's a story that has been preserved by God to teach us what he is truly capable of doing in times of darkness, even when it seems he may be absent or nowhere to be found. Today, as I land this series, there's three things that I wanna do. One of them, I just wanna take a moment to look at the structure of this book, the way that it's written. It is incredibly unique in all of scripture and see what we can learn from it. The second thing I wanna do, I wanna look at some of the overarching ideas that we see culminating in the final chapter in the book of Ruth and see what we can learn to apply when we find ourselves in dark times. And then lastly, I want to look at what some theologians consider the most crucial part of this book, the genealogy of David that we find as the book lands. The problem that we are unpacking today, or the question we are attempting to answer through this teaching, is how can we trust and believe in God in the darkest of times and what should we do when we find ourselves in them? If this is your first time with us, or if you're just like me, you might be a little forgetful. Here is some context to our story. The events covered in the book of Ruth take place in a time known as the time of Judges, a 300-year period in Israel's history that I would like to call national narcissism. Um, it's a time when they had no true king, a time when everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes, and a time when they put on display, and I quote, the tragic story of Israel's fall into total corruption and complete failure, a time when they had forgotten the very nature of God. Things were not good. The story begins with explaining the desolation of a woman's family named Naomi. Uh, her husband and her two sons have died. One of her two daughters-in-law leaves to return to her mother's home. And because of this, Naomi is convinced that God stands against her. It says in chapter one that the Lord's hand has been turned against me. But early on, we see Naomi's other widowed daughter-in-law do something incredibly radical. She was a Moabite named Ruth. Now, Moabites were historically and consistently considered complete enemies to the nation of Israel. And like I said, she does something radical. Though she does not belong to or would conceivably be accepted into, she commits to stand with her mother-in-law, Naomi, until... Check this out. They're buried next to one another. She clings to this woman in her despair and things begin to change. Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem because in chapter one it says she, she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And a lot of coincidences begin to happen. It just so happens to be fruitful in a time of famine in Bethlehem. Ruth happens to glean in a field owned by a godly man named Boaz. And Boaz happens to protect her to bless her, and to teach her about the God of Israel. Boaz looks past her label as an enemy and a foreigner and sees her incredible faith, her strength, honor, and virtue. And then as we saw last week in our story's climax, we see Boaz bring a swift end to the delay of justice that was due to Naomi. He confronts cowardice and faithlessness and partners with this seemingly absent God in the process of restoring this broken and desolate family. As Boaz follows God's word, he in fact becomes the kinsman redeemer 
of Naomi and Ruth and a picture of our coming Savior, a type of Jesus. And this is where our story begins today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women of the town said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age because your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took this child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashun. Nashun the father of Solomon. Solomon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. So we see Boaz marries Ruth, establishing her as a daughter of Israel and a part of the people of God. This act also simultaneously restores Naomi's future and provides safety, security, and protection. And we see the beginning of the line of David, Israel's greatest earthly king. We also see the path that eventually will lead to our Savior Jesus, the one who will be responsible for not only our salvation, but the salvation of the world. In four short chapters, we see starving being turned to full. We see abandoned to cherished. We see futurelessness to secure, and we see mourning has been transformed into worship. Obed's name literally means worship. I'm not sure about you, but I am never satisfied with the details, just the facts. I want to take stories apart. I want to understand why they work the way that they do. For example, point number one, why is God nowhere to be found in the narrative? Or what can we learn about how this book is written? Why does this book not include God himself? Why does it almost never or nearly mention what God is up to? See, we know that from the entirety of scripture that God is never absent. We know uh, because the Bible is full of language that describes his actions, his emotions, even his words when they are captured by the author or spoken prophetically through one of his prophets. So why did God inspire this book the way that he did? Why is this book so unsupernatural? I have had my fair share of profound supernatural experiences. I've seen God radically heal right in front of my eyes. I've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and he has whispered to me prophetically. But this story is a lot like what the majority of how life truly feels. Seemingly random details that we work to extract meaning out of. Some would argue that this intellectual process is the essence of the human experience. You see, I believe along with other teachers of this good book that the Lord inspired this book the way that he did and left it for us to train us. Check this out. This is from Tim Mackey, the author of The Bible Project, and he says this about the book of Ruth. The story found in Ruth is training us to look for the fingerprints of God at work in our everyday lives and to see that every conversation, every decision, every circumstance, every day you get up, every relationship, you never know what moment, what conversation is going to be woven together into the grand story of our God. These are common men, 
common women moving, working, conversing. I mean, this book scarcely mentions the Lord did this or the Lord did that. This is what most of life is like. And this book teaches us that God is in fact with us and working for our good and his glory, regardless of how thick and dark the shadows of life are strewn across our circumstances. This is, what the, this is what this book is here to teach us. I believe this is why it was written in this way, so that we could have hope when it seems that God is not near and we can trust that he is working for our benefit. Mercy comments in this dark season of life that God has so sovereignly chosen for us to live, that he has placed us in. Can we strengthen our necks and train our eyes to lift our gaze to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith? This book is truly unique for this reason. It stands alone in its nature in scripture. Let's move on to point number two. Let's touch on a few things that culminate in chapter four and look back and see what we can learn from Ruth and Naomi throughout the narrative. Let's look at the overarching ideas that we see in the book of Ruth and see what we can learn to do in times of darkness. Let's start with Naomi. What can we learn from her to help us in times of darkness when God seems absent? We see in chapter four, Naomi is secure, joyful, and worshiping. But how did she get from clearly God is against me to absolutely stoked? As soon as Ruth found favor, Naomi's attitude began to change. And there were a lot of notable things that she did. She gave wise counsel to her daughter-in-law. She rejoiced as favor came upon her. But it's easy to begin to trust God when things are going well. I believe what is most critical for us to learn from this is what she did in her despair. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This passage is the closest thing that mentions the Lord moving on their behalf. Um, the word visited in Hebrew uh, is pakad, and it means to visit or to attend to. It's not a poetic license. This is what the Bible is saying. Guys, listen. In physical famines, go to where there is food, of course. But more importantly, in the spiritual famines of life, go to where you know the Lord visits his people. For me, during this dark time that we have found ourselves, selves in. The Word of God has been one of those places. Prayer has been one of those places. Podcasts from trusted teachers that speak truth over me has been one of those places. Our Sunday morning messages has been one of those places. But for me personally, the place where God has met me the most has been our Sunday backyard sessions. Um, This last Sunday, I took the gnarliest crash of my adult life. I absolutely ate in on my one wheel. It's a weird electric skateboard. Don't worry about it. And I was on my way to Nick's place to set up for this Sunday's, this past Sunday's backyard sessions. And as I stood in the presence of God's people, hearing their voices crying out to the only hope that we have. And as I stood there with my leg in pain, I I thought to myself, if it took the crash to get me to this place, it was worth it. (sighs) This has been a place for me that God has visited me in this time of famine of connectivity. Now I know some of you are not able to attend these for safety reasons. The second most common place that I have seen the Lord visit his people is through our times of Zoom prayer. 
Never in my life did I think those words would come out of my mouth. I'm tired of looking at people on screens, but in despite of my attitude towards that, God has met us as we have gathered digitally to pray as a people. It has been a powerful and profound time. It has produced togetherness and connectivity for me in ways I never thought it could. If you are isolated to protect yourself or others that you love, find a way to connect. Find ways that feed your spirit. Mercy Commons, in times of spiritual famines or when the darkest of life circumstances press in, go to where you know you can find the food that you need. Now on to Ruth. What can we glean that has led her to this climax? What has led this woman out of the shadows and into the grand redemptive story of God? Ruth is more of a hero in this narrative than she is a damsel in distress. Even here in chapter 4 we see, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age because your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth. Okay. Why is she better than seven sons? All right. We know she's got two of them beat. I know that's a tragic, terrible joke. You might not be referring to the two sons that died. Anyways, why is she better than two sons? Why does she have such a specific place of honor among the women of Bethlehem? I believe that this book would have been a one-chapter book that ended quickly something like this. And Naomi died and was forgotten, but it didn't. It ended the way we just heard, and here is why. Back into chapter one, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Guys, this is one of the largest lessons to follow in times of darkness. The place of honor that she received, the restored future, and the line of David would not be here without this very moment. Basically, from here on, Ruth works hard, and she, and she follows Boaz and Naomi's advice. Even with Obed, the birth of the son, the, the women of the town give her credit and praise her, but it says in the text that the Lord enabled her to do so. She has earned a place of honor because she clung in faith to Naomi. She left the comfort of home and entered a hostile and uncertain future for the benefit of someone that she loves. Think about it this way. So if in this book we have Boaz, he is an idiom or type or a foreshadowing of our true redeemer. This is what he says about Ruth. See, Ruth is shocked by Boaz's kindness and generosity she inquires why she is receiving it. it. says, why have I found favor in your eyes? This is from chapter 2, verse 10. That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And now you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, 
the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Mercy Commons in times of darkness cling to one another. It has the power to change a nation. This was the very thing that God was going to do through the grandson of Ruth. Isolation comes easy in this time, but it comes with a price. It comes with the price of missing moments like this. Just like in this story, God often uses human beings to minister and to strengthen his people and to change darkness into dawn. Guys, I truly believe that in this time, the children of God that have been entrusted to Mercy Commons will come out spiritually healthy and sturdy if each and every one of you is covenantally clinging to a portion of the body of Christ, whether this is over FaceTime, over Zoom, or physically together. So those are the two ideas that we see culminating in the resolution of this narrative in chapter four that I think are pivotal to the moment that we find ourselves in as a people. Now let's have a deeper look at what many scholars consider the most important portion of the book of Ruth. Point number three, the genealogy of David. Let me read it again for you, starting in verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishun, Nishun the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. Now I know what you could be thinking, really? That's the most important part of this incredible story. Someone once said that genealogies in the Bible are a way of observing God's faithfulness throughout the story of history. As I mentioned, this was the time of Judges, and this passage is announcing to us as readers that in the midst of economic, moral, and religious corruption, God's will will always prevail. But did you know that there's another copy of this genealogy? It's found in the very first pages of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. It's found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. But it's repeated, but there's some names that are added to it. We find the name of Ruth along with a few other mothers of the faith. We see Tamar, the mother of Perez. We see Rahab, the mother of Boaz. And Bathsheba, or Uriah's wife, the mother of Solomon. Here's what you need to know about these women found in the line of not only David, but in the line of Jesus himself. Tamar, uh, Tamar in Genesis uh, pretended to be a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah. I understand why she did what she did. She was trying to survive, but she took matters into her own hands when every man in her life had completely failed her. But she was no show pony by any means. This is something that PR people would say to keep out of the spotlight. Let's look at Rahab, the mother of Boaz, not a pretend prostitute, but a professional. She was the one who hid the spies of Israel back in the book of Joshua. She is surprising and shocking to see intentionally edited in and included in the genealogy of Christ. How about Bathsheba? This poor woman was not like Rahab or Tamar. Um, she was raped and her husband was killed by the king who raped her. This was a tragedy that was placed upon her. 
and even her, her name is mentioned. You see, we try to hide these things in our culture. Now, why did God include them? To make special mention while recording the most important genealogy in scripture. Why did he include such individuals in his display of faithfulness throughout history? And according to Nick Saltis, the answer is simple, and it's this, to magnify the scandalous grace of God. Including these names is God's way of inviting us and our brokenness into the work of his grand redemptive story. The restoration of all things, the overthrowing of darkness, and the ushering in the kingdom of light. What this does is reminds us today that God is in the business of using broken, sinful, yet redeemed individuals through his radical mercy and grace to heal human hearts and advance his kingdom to the othermost ends of the earth. Maybe you can relate with Tamar. Maybe you have taken things into your own hands out of desperation. Your name can still be written in the book of life. Or maybe you're like Rahab. Your lifestyle of sin causes you to believe that you are beyond the reach of God. This name is included in this genealogy, in this line to teach you otherwise. God can use you to advance his kingdom, to bless others, to bring restoration to the world. Or perhaps you're like Bathsheba. You've had a terrible sin committed against you. And let me just say this, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And let me comfort you with one thing, just quickly. One day, every man and every woman will give an account to the only true judge for everything that they have done. And I pray for the souls of men who perpetrate such things. But whether you can relate to Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba, even Ruth, she is an enemy of the state, a foreigner. She has no blood right to this party. She is utterly desolate when the narrative begins, and God uses her to change the very nation that despises her. She becomes the great-grandmother of the king that would bring the time of judges to its end. If God makes a point to rewrite this genealogy so that these names are declared, he is making a statement that he can use broken men and women to fulfill his will. That there is hope for me, that there is hope for you, There's hope for everyone who will place their faith in this incredible God. In closing, Mercy Commons, in these dark times, seek out the Lord's presence where you know you can find it. Cling to one another until the dawn breaks. Your love and affection could spark something that can change a nation. And know this, that no one covered by the blood of Christ can ever be disqualified from the kingdom of God. If he can use me, he can use you. Mercy Commons, it's been a privilege to land this series. The Book of Ruth, God in the Shadows. I hope that you are able to more fully trust God in what's happening right now. And I am so excited to start our new series next week. And until then, go be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, Please rate us and hit subscribe, and if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.